Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast, season two. Tune in every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business, and magic. Created by a cosmic witch for the modern empowered woman seeking to craft a more magical lifestyle. But if you're not a woman, you're welcome too. I'm your host, Alexis Neve. Ready to live life limitless? Then let's dive in. So we're live. Um, so as I said, um, icebreaker question that I saw yeah. you later in the book. <laughs> when you said that you asked scientists that you interviewed about their favorite fictional alien. So since this is a witchcraft podcast, <laughs> do you have a favorite magical being? Ooh. <laughs> Out of that. left field. That's a favorite magical being. I made it broader than just asking for witches. No, I love it. I love it. Let me think for a second. A favorite magical being. Yeah, I do. Um, I think um, it's, it's, do you mean like a kind of magical being, like category, you know, like witch? Whichever. Whatever. Um, if you have a specific I, one. I, yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind for me um, is a character from a book. It's um, Proganowski's from A Wind in the Door, the Madeline Langle book, which is like a children's book. Um, but And he's an angel. He's a cherubim. Um, and I just, he's one of my favorite fictional characters overall. I just love him very much. Um, and I think that he counts as magical yeah i'd say so it's okay anyway at any rate it's a very common spiritual being so that's uh, exactly yeah those demons and deities all sort of mm -hmm. the same category yeah that's interesting as uh i do i did see the mentions of <clears throat> langle in um in the book yeah yeah if you're writing something about science so this was actually a, a later question that I plotted down, but I'll just go with the flow. Is that part of the reason you ended up being a science writer? And how did you Those get? books, you mean? Yeah. So was there yeah, I mean, the, the, the Wrinkle in Time series was very formative for me. I think I read the first, I think I read A Wrinkle in Time when I was like seven years old and read the whole series and reread them a million times and definitely of Langle's books those are the more quote-unquote like science focused the other series which I never really got into is much more magical but those books really sit on the edge between 
science and magic. And I think that's part of what's so wonderful about them, that they really combine the two, that there's the science, that science becomes magical in those books. Um, And so those were, you know, something that I loved early on that probably opened the door to being interested in science fiction, but in a very magical and emotional way, you know, like love is what wins the day in all of those books. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that those were a big early influence on me. I could tell. <laughs> yeah. I, I invited you when your publicist was looking for a uh, place in you for promoting the book was that you have this approach to science and if you don't mind me quoting from the book, you said that you've no. been drawn to it, not like other people who have a drive to understand, but because of how much it shows what we don't actually know, and all of this mm-hmm. kind of like the open possibilities. And that that's really aligned with the way I look at magic, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you're any familiar with the idea of the science-seeking, skeptical, uh, mm-hmm. so that's how I look at it. So for me, the question of, whether it's real in like a materialistic sense doesn't actually make sense. It seems to be like the wrong question to ask. Yeah. So that, I was like, you're talking about science, but you are more or less talking about magic in, in the book. Says, yeah, I, th- I think there's like a big, a big parallel there and a lot of overlap where it's, it's about, we don't need to, for me... In the way I engage with science, and I think this aligns with how you think about magic, like we don't need to understand it. It doesn't matter how it works. What matters is its effect on our lives and sort of how engaging with it makes us feel and worrying about whether it's true or not. um, It's they're useful. They're useful tools and meaningful parts of our lives. I mean, I'm not saying I don't think science is true, but that's the and and part of what I love about it is learning things that change how I feel about the world, you know, whether that's learning about the inner workings of a cell and just how amazing that is. But what's the reason I like learning about it is because it's amazing, not because it's true. The fact that it's true isn't the primary feeling. Yeah, and that also opens up a whole other conversation on the meaning of what true actually means. Well, yeah. yeah there was a lot of uh, times that you touched upon people debating definitions of things. And mm-hmm. made it, for me, as someone who's a, a background in the humanities, and part of the reason for that is the aptitude to science that came in, within, well, my immediate family and the background around me was very utilitarian. So for any, mm-hmm. if you understand it or anybody listening understands the Big Bang Theory uh, references, my family will look at Sheldon and think he's wasting his time. And he <laughs> should become an engineer like Howard because that's like a solid job. Mm-hmm. And there was so much. The, the, all the people that you interviewed that, in fact, we're dealing with thinking and abstract and making sense of the data in a way that I was personally surprised and a lot of the time at the extent of how there is the realism in in the sense that this is the data, this is 
obviously there, but how we look at it seems mm-hmm. to blur the lines of what I thought science was. And the idea that it's a lot more imagination. Yeah, it's always been like, I've always been criticized for being too imaginative. But if you think about it, the word comes from the idea of looking at things as an image. So it's not mm-hmm. necessarily to say it's fictitious. And I was like, wow. So actual scientists are doing that. It was like one example was the um, exoplanets. And mm-hmm. I don't want to put too much into the book because I really want everybody to buy it and read it. It's really <laughs> amazing. But if you want to touch upon that a little. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so I... And just to back up a little, I also have a humanities background. So I was a theater major in undergrad, and my graduate degree is in creative writing. So I I took, I audited one astronomy class in undergrad. I took a biology class because it sounded interesting. And then in graduate school, once I realized I wanted to be writing about this topic, I took uh, like an undergrad astronomy class on exoplanets and astrobiology. But so I'm also coming at this as a humanities person who has always loved science, who's always been interested in science, but didn't, you know, study it past high school, really. Um, And I think that that question of imagination is part of why I love writing about this, because we can't just decide to get the concrete answers. For a lot of other sciences, the answer is here on Earth, and you just have to figure out the right questions to ask and the right methods to use, and you can eventually get an answer. But anything beyond Earth, the answers just are not, we can't force them. In terms of learning about other planets or looking for life on other worlds, or even trying to study the origin of life, we can get closer and closer, but there are technological limits. There are luck limits. Like if there's life on just a few other planets, what are the odds that we're going to be studying those particular planets? You know, there's this this big looming possibility that we might not get answers. And I think that that is a little different from a lot of other fields. And I think that's probably part of why it's so fun to write about astronomy and the search for life. Um, And so in terms of exoplanets, you know, planets beyond the solar system, we know so little about them. And even something I learned writing the book that I don't think really made it in is how little we know about the planets within the solar system. That when you read that like, oh, Jupiter is made of this and then farther down it's made of this and then at the very bottom there's this kind of core or, you know, on Neptune it's icy and gases and this, that and the other thing. It's so much inference. It's not that we've ever sent, you know, a little probe to go into Neptune's atmosphere and take a scoop and sample it and test it. Um, It's, you know, um, measuring the wavelengths of light and using that to infer what's there. It's using ways of deducing the mass and the density. And so figuring out, well, if it's this, you know, which is not to say that this isn't real science, but I mean, up until. I don't know, five or so years ago with the New Horizons mission to Pluto, our best image of Pluto was a blurry, pixelated blob. It's so much deduction is going on about even within the solar system. Um, And so then beyond the solar system, we know so little about these planets. We know 
depending on how they were detected, we know their radius, like their width. We might know their mass. If we know both of those, we can figure out the density. And then once we know the density, we can start figuring out what it's made of, how much rock, how much gas. And also from our sense of, you know, big planets tend to be this way, small planets tend to be that way. But there are planets where we don't know if it's like a big Earth or a small Neptune, which is a huge difference (laughs) in terms of what that planet might be like. And so one of my favorite ideas that I encountered when writing this book was in the work of an anthropologist named Lisa Masseri, who wrote a book that's basically an ethnography of planetary scientists. And one of the ideas that she has in that book that just really blew my mind open is that a lot of this inference work and deduction that scientists do about exoplanets and the way they talk about exoplanets is a process of turning a planet into a place. And I loved that idea that it's an imaginative act, whether it's figuring out how to process the data to be able to see the signature of a planet crossing in front of its star, or um, the artists who who make illustrations that go along with press releases announcing new discoveries. Um, You know, they're using all of this scientific knowledge to fuel these imaginings, to try to, both for themselves and in communication to the public, turn this little speck in the sky and a handful of data points into something we can imagine as a place, somewhere we can imagine Mm -hmm. being. Um, And I just, I found that really, really powerful, which again, it's the power of the humanities in conversation with science, right? Because she's an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Um, Just gives us these new ways to understand scientific work as this work of imagination and making meaning out of data. Yeah, there was another example that that I liked was the one about extinct animals, and, mm-hmm. and the idea that at the end of the day we don't actually know, but that's not the point of recreating them. And it was all about mm-hmm. helping people connect with that reality that otherwise would be just data, and that's not really yeah. what humans are about, is it? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Like that's a section where I talked to um, an illustrator who works at the Museum of Natural History in New York. And he sometimes is drawing a creature based on a skeleton or just on a skull bone or just on some fragments. And by figuring out, and it takes so much scientific knowledge in terms of anatomy, how would a muscle connect to a bone? What would that look like through flesh? And so much scientific knowledge about, well, who might this animal's better known relatives might be, you know, would it look like a boar or like, you know, who knows? It's like I've seen, you know, old drawings of whales like based on just their skeletons. And if you don't know that they're surrounded with blubber, which (laughs) does not leave a fossil, right, you get a very different looking creature. Um, But the goal isn't to say this is what this animal looked like. It's to say this is what this animal might have looked like. And this was a real animal that lived millions and millions of years ago. And through his work, you're able to feel like you could imagine it walking through the forest and that I think builds a more of an emotional and personal connection to natural history rather than just making it a list of facts. I can see the Uranus's background now, especially. <laughs> I 
I thought that you actually write really, really well. And you're Thank you. able to weave everything in an almost magical way. Like you're telling a story in, a, you could have read it in a fantasy or in the science fiction. Like you, It's really pleasurable. The, the oh, way good. you write it, so I can tell that you mentioned your, <laughs> yeah. your degree. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how do you end up wanting to write about this topic then while you were studying yeah. completely different things? So I've I've loved science my whole life. Um, my dad really likes science and, and astronomy and space, and he also got me into science fiction. And my grandfather on my mother's side was an engineer. And also, you know, I remember when I was maybe six years old, he took me to watch a lunar eclipse. Um, he was a gardener and taught me how plants grow, you know, uh, just really loved sharing that knowledge. And um, so I was interested in it from the start. And I think when I showed a little interest, they both nurtured that. And so I loved science all through high school. And I actually thought that I might double major in theater and physics, partly because doesn't that sound cool, right? Um, but I also just really loved physics. But uh, in my last year of high school, I was taking calculus and like wasn't keeping up with the homework well enough and then realized I had completely fallen behind. I was like, all right, well, that's that's a problem. Um, and also, I think a theater and physics double major, I would have absolutely lost my mind with all the work. So I'd always loved science. It just, I also growing up, like I didn't know what a professional career as a scientist looked like. I didn't know what a science PhD was like, what a research lab was like. I had no idea how to navigate that in a university setting, which I know now um, because I, I work as a writing consultant with science graduate students, but it, it like wasn't a thing I knew anything about. So I... In undergrad, I majored in theater and I did creative writing. And then after graduation, I worked in theater for a few years, like in new play development. Um, and then I got back to writing and eventually found my way back to graduate school to get this degree in creative nonfiction. And then in my first semester, a professor mentioned that there was a science writing group on campus um, that I think was run by sort of the through the biology department. It's sort of neuroscience focused, but open to all scientists. And I was like, oh, I love science. I love writing. Why am I not writing about science? It just like hadn't occurred to me. Um, and so I joined this group and started hearing other people workshopping their science writing. And it was both scientists and writers. It's a really, it's a really wonderful group that I'm still a part of just because it's a great, and I workshopped some sections of the book. I workshopped the uh, the chapter on planets, actually, and got like a lot of really helpful feedback from scientists in all disciplines and writers. Um, and so then that sort of reconnected me to that early passion for science and showed me a way to engage with it through my writing. And so I took, you know, a handful of science writing and science journalism classes. And then in that program, uh, your second semester, every nonfiction student had to take a research seminar where you, you know, learn about archival research and really using libraries in depth and building writing from that sort of research, which I was thrilled about. You know, there are memoir writers in the program who maybe are like, oh, why am I doing this? But I was like, yes, this is great. And you have to pick a topic to research and write about for that semester. And I wanted to write about the Voyager Golden Record, which I write about in the book, which for anyone listening who doesn't know is the sort of like message in a bottle 
record that was strapped to the Voyager probes that were launched in the 70s. And Carl Sagan designed this record and put sounds and music and images on it. And I wanted to write about that. And my professor thought that wasn't broad enough. And so she said, just write about aliens, write about the search for aliens. I was like, that's really broad, but okay. And that was when I started. And so that was when I took that astronomy class um, and learned a lot about exoplanets and planet formation and started writing about this. And that was, at this point, 12 years ago. So the project took a long while to find its final form because I loved writing about this. And then I would go to the bookstore and go to the science section and go to the astronomy shelf. And it was full of books written by scientists about are we alone? What are the odds of life? How are we going to find it? You know, all of this stuff. And I was like, well, where is my plate? There's no room for me on this shelf. And it wasn't until years later that I, um, in writing about the topic in a in an essay series, realized that my way in was imagination, that my way in was bringing science fiction aliens and scientific imaginings together. And then that turned into the book. Um, but yeah, it's just something I've always loved. You know, like in high school, I remember reading Carl Sagan and just falling totally in love. I loved going to the planetarium. It's just all, because it's so romantic. You know, and Carl Sagan is so romantic in how he talks about it. It's He's almost mystical, you know, and just like the mm. great meaning and power of connection that we might find. Um, you know, he really talked about in t- other aliens, uh, other intelligences in a very spiritual way. It was very much like finding some other higher power. So anyway, that's that's the long story, but that's how I ended up writing the book about aliens. <laughs> Yeah, it's a wonderful story, actually, because I, I have the same feeling about Carl Sagan's writings, yeah. to be fair. That's, yeah. I don't think anybody could read it and be like, it, it wasn't look. it was literally looking at the cosmos in wonder. And that's yeah. actually the tagline at the end of my show for a reason, because I really think we lost that as a society, that we stopped yeah. seeing, it, it, it sounds cliche, but the magic in things. And we yeah. think science is more mechanical than it really is, since, oh, as you've wonderfully proven, it's a lot of questions that I was like, as a layperson, I, I have no idea why they're discussing this, because philosophy <laughs> of science, really interested in it. I'm familiar yeah. with the fact that those questions about, like, how do you define life are being asked. The fact yeah. that to be able to do the research, you have to be asking the same question. Mm-hmm. And the idea of how much was that bringing back Carl Sagan was it um, that you mentioned you wrote um, about how much of what we consider life would tick the bots of that list but actually not be alive in, in any sense that yeah. we think is alive so we have all of this conversation about life on earth and um, I think it was towards the end of the book they were talking about when they thought they found life on Venus mm-hmm. and uh, I completely forgot that that happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you'd think I would remember something like that. But I found it really interesting because it shows the biases we come to the question mm-hmm. of what this life that we're looking for actually looks like. And yeah. um, it wasn't woven through the entirety of the book, but then when you got to that point, it was really, like, really clear that there's a reason why science fiction looks the way it does. Mm-hmm. We're sort of kind of like looking at our 
and be like, can there be more people like us out there? It's, it's um, fascinating. Is there anything you want to add on that um, score? Yeah, I mean, so, so something that's really interesting about, you know, the idea of looking for, like, how, how we we can't, we haven't figured out how to express what life is. And I'm actually working on another piece now that I'm writing um, that sort of came out of the first chapter of the book about the study of the origin of life. And I, I mentioned this in the book that, you know, I've, there's a lot of conversation very often about like, how do we define life? How do we define life? But there's another thread of that conversation that simultaneously comes from philosophy of science. And, um, I know a physicist, a theoretical physicist who's pushing really hard that we don't need a definition of life, that according to how philosophers think about definitions, definitions are for language, they're for words, they're for concepts that humans make up. But if life is something intrinsic to the universe, then a def- we're not going to have a definition of it, just like we don't have a definition of water. You have what, what they say we need, this philosopher of science and this physicist is a theory of life, a scientific theory that tells us fundamentally what life is, the same way that we know that water is H2O because of molecular theory. You know, it wasn't until we understood molecules and compounds that we could say, here is what water is. And similarly, we we don't want to know what the word life means. We want to know what it is. And that's a question of theory rather than definitions, And which is part of what that Carl Sagan essay you were referencing is about, where he's showing that every definition we can come up with fails because either something that we know is not alive meets the criteria, like fire. Oh, it consumes fuel to sustain itself. Well, fire's not <laughs> alive. Or something... Um, that we know is alive gets excluded, like mules because they can't reproduce or spores because they're dormant and not metabolically active. So definitions don't work. And I just think it's really interesting that it's really coming from these two opposite ends of the spectrum, a philosopher and a theoretical physicist, because I think they have the remove to be able to get this different kind of perspective on the situation and on what is needed and and again, it's like it's a scientific question, but it's also a question of how do we understand fundamental things about the universe? Like the physics that we understand doesn't explain life. So mm-hmm. can we come up with a whole new conceptualization that explains what that is? Yeah, I was just thinking that um, you mentioned it. I think it was in the introduction that the fundamental thread behind this idea of the possibility of life mm-hmm. is that it becomes a question about how we understand ourselves as human. And I, yeah. a lot of it seems to be about making meaning, which is mm-hmm. something that interests me, obviously, from a magical perspective. Because there's always these kind of conversations like the astrology can't be real. and so It's a language to talk about the human experience. Exactly. It's real. You don't believe in English. You don't believe in French. You use them to talk about something. And that's mm-hmm. exactly the way that... It's obviously talking about something different when you're like, looking at it from the astronomy perspective. But I don't think they're, they're far removed. That's a, I think we lost that. Uh, so my background, I actually have a master's degree in history. Mm-hmm. And the focus on the uh, um, like, intellectual history of early modern Europe. So when you were talking about, oh, in the Renaissance, and, and so 
we used to have this understanding before the scientific age that there was no difference. It was two sides of the same coins. You were looking at the stars and that was the setup to understand our place in the world. As simple as mm-hmm. that. So even like in the more far away kind of divination type astrology, it was always something about ourselves as humans. And then we sort of lost it with the mechanical age and things mm-hmm. started becoming a lot more focused on the data. So it was wonderful for me when you started talking about, now I will probably mess up the timelines, but that more recently we reopened this conversation in mm-hmm. the kind of more imaginative ways, as you were saying, that was your uh, focus, because the more we know, the least we know, because <laughs> we realize oh, how yeah. much is actually not... And opens up a whole other conversation about how the mind works because I was reading in some bits I was like there's a lot of assumptions here about our reality being real because that we're looking at you you mentioned it and said um something along the lines of it's limited the way that we're looking at life and beyond earth because we're looking for places that have water and that kind of things and you're like it was like you're actually right I never thought about it but that's kind of like Asking the question, expecting to know the answer, it's just kind of like a logical fallacy, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah, in the in the piece that I'm writing, the physicist who I talked to, she was talking about a different thing, but the metaphor she used really applies, where she said it's as if um, the researchers are trying to prove that a prime number is prime rather than trying to find the next prime number. You know, that they're like testing their view of things rather than trying to see more. And I think that that, that applies to what you were saying as well. Yeah, it's an interesting um, point to be coming from a physicist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Saying, no, she's, uh, she's a very... Uh, um, you know, this is the this is the same physicist who, who thinks that we need a theory of life. She thinks that... Uh, that um, uh, there's a big, challenging, fundamental question that's being ignored for smaller, easier problems. Yeah, I can see that. Although, yeah, kind of like from the she's outside. probably not your probably not your standard physicist entirely, but yeah, that's why she's interesting like to talk to and write about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that when your done yeah. comes out. Uh, yeah, I try to keep these things short and sure. The, last guest that we ended up talking for like two hours uh so i don't know do you have anything else that you want to talk about i kind of think we covered everything that yeah i I mean i think that covers a lot we talked about (laughs) the origin of life and planets and evolution and carl sagan i mean that's really (laughs) that's the whole span of the book right that's about it yeah yeah um I liked the quote that you had at the beginning, uh, the epitaph. As a, mm-hmm. I felt it was just a really good way of introducing um, the book. Yeah. Uh, I also, I found myself as I was writing, trying to fit Ursula Le Guin in wherever I could because she's one of my favorite science fiction, one of my favorite writers overall, and just such an important voice. But it was she does she didn't write a lot of books about aliens that were very unlike humans. Like her science fiction series is 
very human-like aliens. And I was like, where do I fit Ursula in here? And I ended up finding a couple places where she was important. But mm-hmm. having having the epigraph from her felt very meaningful to me because, like, her work – it's like I, I really feel like, you know, when I was growing up, it was Madeline L'Engle and now it's Ursula Le Guin. They feel very, very twinned for me in that way um, because I did, you know – there's there's a lot of science fiction written about in the book as well that I'm writing about how scientists do this imaginative work and also how the imaginings of science fiction um, speak to that and reveal things to us just the same, which I think also gets to what you were saying about um, astrology and how it doesn't have to be like literally factually true, you know, like whether Venus was like over here or over there when I was born is not going to physically exert a force on my body, but it's this system for finding meaning. Um, and I think that fiction can work the same way. Um, and so, you know, I, tr- I tried to write almost entirely just about fiction that I love and find really meaningful <laughs> in the book. Um, and I really resonate with that way of thinking about astrology because I've never really gotten into astrology, but for, um, for a while when I was working on the book to warm up, I would draw a tarot card and then either like reflect on it or um, do like a free write sort of inspired by it. it. Sometimes I would draw one, sometimes I would draw three. And it's never <laughs> that I thought the randomness of what card I drew was telling me like there's like a fundamental truth, but there was truth to find in the associations I made with the card in the meaning that it made for me. You know, if I draw a card, does it, what does it remind me of? What does it make me feel? You know, what message does it seem like I'm looking for? It was a way of of understanding what was going on inside me, which mm-hmm. I found really helpful before writing because like you have to be sort of aware of your own mood so that you are aware of how that's informing your writing and your ideas. And so it was a really helpful way of um, checking in with myself and like getting a sense of what's been going on under the surface of my mind as like an associative tool. Um, so I went, you know, I, I feel like that has very similar, is very similar to how, how you talk about astrology just as like mm-hmm. a way of connecting and making meaning and finding what we need. Yeah, no, that's very true. That's also how, uh, I use it a lot of the time rather than mm-hmm. uh, trying to predict the future. Although, given the way I think of the future as following from what we're doing now, it's sort of kind of like the same thing at the end of the day. But yeah, yeah. like like changing what you, the way that the card changes your thoughts and feelings and awarenesses does direct the future through you. It's not like the card says here is the fact that's going to happen, but the card creates a new resonance with you a new path and you se- it gives you a nudge in a certain direction mm-hmm. and so it definitely influences where you're going but you also it's a conversation between what's inside you and what the card sparks for you yeah which is one of the things but I you didn't thought- think i was going to be talking about tarot cards when i came on <laughs> well, well i could have guessed that you must have had an interest in something to be like no i actually think this is a fit i'd like to appear on it so oh yeah <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, there. yeah, because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of astronomers are very defensive against astrology because it can, when you look at it as factual, as physical, as, you know, there, people just confuse astronomy and astrology. And so I understand why astronomers are defensive because yeah. it confuses people's understanding of their work. But I think as a sort of, um, 
personal practice, as a way of making meaning, as a way of feeling connected to other people. Like, look, I'm I'm a Sagittarius and on the surface, like I am every time I like see an astrology meme and it's like, you're so impulsive and adventurous. I'm like, no. And then my friends who are into it are like, well, surely there's a lot of Capricorn and Virgo in your chart. And I'm like, nope. Nope, I've got like some Scorpio (laughs) kicking around. So for me, it hasn't proved to be a powerful way of making meaning, but that's okay. It doesn't need to be like that for everyone. And for people who find it meaningful and insightful and reassuring, like it's not hurting anyone. It's only hurting people when they like get confused about astronomy. I'm okay with that separation <laughs> i will challenge you now on the not a sagittarius because right, one, yeah, other let's theme, hear one other theme is the philosophy and having all this uh, thirst for knowledge and opening up the horizons mm-hmm. yeah. of what knowledge means and you wrote a book that is very much <laughs> <laughs> the work of a sagittarius yeah a sagittarius I, I, wouldn't wouldn't make spreadsheets the way i make <laughs> spreadsheets <laughs> I wouldn't really know that. There's a lot of potential other placements <laughs> that I can use to justify it. Uh, I did right. bring up the quotes. Is I, I thought it would be a nice way out, although then you mm-hmm. could probably open up another conversation. So the quote you had <laughs> okay. is the epigraph. was, living, being in the world was a much greater and stranger thing than she had ever dreamed. And I thought that mm-hmm. was beautiful. And there's a really perfect encapsulation of you were trying to do with the book mm-hmm. and yeah I could keep you here the entire afternoon to talk about it but obviously I want people to go and buy it since when the podcast comes out the book is out it's celebrating the release day ah so, that's amazing yeah. to think about so then of course I don't want to talk too much about the book but it's been a pleasure to talk about all of the other topics that we touched and yeah Thank you so much for agreeing to come here and sharing this with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. uh, Full disclosure, I hate editing this podcast because I don't like my ganky anime girl voice, especially when I'm excited. And I'm always excited. Otherwise, why would I have a podcast? But seriously... Don't you love when you get to have conversations with like-minded people? Which leads me to the card for this week, which is the 20th to the 26th of April. And I laughed when I saw it, since we started this week with a solar eclipse in Aries, which peaked at a quarter past five-ish UK time this morning. The card is the Magician. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm a one deck person and it's the mystical manga tarot by ran with a guidebook by barbara moore published by Llewellyn. now they should give me an affiliate link for this deck because i have had at least two people buy it because of me directly and i don't know that many witches even you guys are just numbers in my analytics unless you reach out to say hi anyway in this deck, the magician is a male figure with stereotypical anime fringe and an eye patch. Think any anime representation of Date Masamune in the history of Japanese animation, but with a military uniform like Mrs. Bennett would like him. I'm mentioning it partly because I think it's hilariously me, but also because I think it may be one of the best designs in the deck and timely for this week. All of the elements appear in the design in what looks like organized chaos, 
and it looks like you need all the elements of the tarot and of nature since it's fire, air, earth and water to do magic. Of course the magician is the first card of the major arcana since the fool sits in the limbo between cycles as card zero and it's in the process of realizing our own power that we take the first step on the journey. This is a card that tells us we have all that we need within ourselves, although it can be hard to see it when we are in tough circumstances. We know that our brains seek patterns and if we feed them a negative prompt, then that's what they'll see. So we need to be conscious to have a little magical thinking when we look at our lives. Are there things we do have the power to shift? That's a question to ponder this week since we have a few hard transits coming up. We are hours away from tourist season at 10 a.m. Central European time, 10.15 actually. And those of you into human design may already know that today through to the weekend we are in gate 3, which is all about themes of change as the only inevitable thing in life. I think pulling the magician in this context is just beautiful and poetic. Anyway, the bad news is just around the corner as the astrology community is about to have a self-fulfilling prophecy with the panic around Mercury going retrograde tomorrow. Anyway, before that we have the eclipse of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and the sun squaring Pluto at 6.26am Central European time. This is a Taurus Aquarius aspect and apparently a great transit if you have to make progress on something that requires hard work but also a trigger for past issues that are still unresolved which comes to no surprise to anyone who has ever tried to get out of their comfort zone. I don't know something about it. If you'd like Put some self-soothing in your schedule for the next couple of days to honour yourself and this transit. I think you should always walk some time to take care of yourself in your schedule as much as possible anyway. After that quiet weekend with the Moon in Taurus and Gemini, we will have then a series of set styles. Mercury now retrograde in Taurus with Mars in Cancer on the 24th. Retrograde aspects have an element of go back to that hard thing you put on the black burner and the energy of a Mercury Mars transit has the vibe of speaking up for yourself and other communications where you might need a fighting spirit. Then on the 25th we have the sunset style Saturn in Pisces so it's a good day to book your calendar for focused work if that's an option. Finally, we have Venus in Gemini and Chiron Aries as another set style on the 26th. Good time for artistic endeavours, especially those related to communication like writing, or checking in with friends that may need a shoulder to cry on. That's all for this week. If you haven't yet checked out my reflection on Taurus season, it's available at witchamusing.substack.com. And you can also find the new moon check-in thread in the chat unless you're an early bird and listen to the episode before I woke up and started it. I'd love to see you there. Also, email any questions for the season finals Q&A at starryskypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, keep living in wonder. 
Thank you for spending your time with me today. I really appreciate you being a part of this community. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends and family and consider giving it a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify to help me reach more people who would love it too. You can also email me with your questions and comments at starryskypodcast.gmail.com. Subscribe to my monthly newsletter, Witchy Musings, on Substack, or find me mostly lurking on Instagram at thisisalexisneve. Thanks to Jenna Sword for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. Until next time, keep living in wonder.